The Men Who Gave Us Wings As the title suggests, the aim is to show the course taken by British aviation from the early 19th century to the outbreak of World War I, including the significant contributions from some of the leading personnel. Progress towards manned flight in Britain proved far from straightforward, and the early struggles, including hard-won advances and regular setbacks, where money was routinely in short supply, helped to reveal the extent of the achievements against widespread disinterest, if not indifference, in this country. Whatever the British experienced, manned flight came about late in historical terms. Following millennia of travel across land and sea, man's first genuine flight by the American Wright brothers took place on the 17th of December 1903, just 116 years ago. It's possible to view flight as a luxurious means of travel compared with the others, and it was certainly the most difficult to achieve. What it lacked for so long was an effective propulsion system offering a favourable power-to-weight ratio, something quite impossible, for instance, with steam engines, which was finally accomplished with the union of the internal combustion engine with efficient propellers to transmit the power generated. Equally important, the power had to be allied to an effective system of aircraft controls. It sounds so simple, but as Socrates, the great 4th century BC philosopher, reminded his followers, it's the easy that's difficult. Relatively modern interest in lighter-than-air flight came about during the 1780s, over a hundred years before the aeroplane, with hot-air balloons produced by the Montgolfier brothers in France. Although technical advances remained limited, and during the 19th century the movement became associated with showmanship and sport more than anything else. While in Britain, for instance, Charles Green made over 500 balloon ascents, he encountered stern opposition from the famous monkey Jacopo with his parachute jumps from a balloon. This, then, was the climate in which the first British pioneers of heavier-than-air flight had to operate including Yorkshire squire George Cayley, a skifted inventor with a lifelong commitment to help safeguard his fellow men. Although still a half-forgotten genius, Cayley is generally recognised as the father of modern aerodynamics. Whatever such claims, his scrupulous scientific approaches helped him become an inspired problem-solver and undertake many notable engineering initiatives. For instance, when the current Home Secretary, William Huskisson, was tragically run over by Stevenson's famed locomotive, the Rocket, Cayley invented a system for automatically applying the brakes of railway engines at the time of a collision. After a fire at Drury Lane Theatre caused the death of 23 firemen, he proposed a jointed sheet iron curtain to close off the stage, versions of which are still used today and following a ship disaster off Scarborough, close to his home, he constructed a self-writing lifeboat. This was by no means all. Upon one of his tenants losing a hand in an accident, he constructed an artificial limb.
Cayley even sketched plans for what he called a universal railway in the shape of a caterpillar tractor closely resembling an early military tank. Cayley was a passionate believer in heavier-than-air flight, and he applied his formidable mental powers to this problem too. He wholly rejected the thinking of the traditionalists who based their techniques on bird flight, using flapping wings or similar devices, substituting them with a fixed lift-generating wing combined with pilot's controls. Cayley also rightly believed that the long-neglected movement towards genuine flight needed a powerful mouthpiece. He argued for a dedicated aeronautical society to promote it, which, however, was not founded until 1866 after his death, and it did not become that influential until the end of the 19th century. The universally low regard for aviation at this time was manifested when Cayley's friend, surgeon and member of the Royal Society, Sir Anthony Carlyle, told him that he was afraid to declare his interest due to the derision it was likely to attract. As for Cayley's aeronautical achievements, in 1804, during his first active period, lasting from 1790 to 1817, he built a simple model glider which air historian Gibbs Smith has called a modern configuration aeroplane. It was actually a kite mounted on a pole with a movable weight underneath it to adjust the centre of gravity and a tail unit attached by a universal joint. Cayley tested it extensively using his own whirling arm apparatus that can be likened to an early crude form of wind tunnel. Before this, he was confident enough to have a silver disc made, engraved with the sketch of an aeroplane that carried his initials GC and the date 1799. Its design was for a fixed-wing aeroplane with a seated pilot and a cruciform tail unit, designed for paddle rather than airscrew propulsion, and equipped with an elevator and rudder. In fact, Cayley considered various other means of propulsion. He rejected steam and his patent gunpowder engine, whose explosions depressed a piston, proved unsatisfactory. He eventually came to favour a hot air engine, by which he meant an internal combustion one. Although this was not yet practicable, he felt it was essential for mechanical flight, and even believed it could lead to speeds of 75 to 100 miles an hour far faster than those actually achieved by the early aviators. Cayley was also concerned with streamlining, with what he described as solids of least resistance. In support, he cited the perfect configurations of a trout as it glided through water. In this early period, he also invented the tension wheel to give aircraft undercarriages lightness and strength rather than relying on the solid wooden wheels of the day. He stretched tension cords from its hub to a circular iron rim, and even calculated that a rim a quarter of an inch in width could bear 15,100 pounds weight. Later, he would replace his cords with wires or spokes. Cayley put aside his aeronautical studies for no less than 26 years, before resuming them during his second period, from 1843 to 1855, 
during his 70th to 82nd years. In 1849, he produced a design for a triplane glider, in which a boy, probably his grandson, apparently floated off the ground for several yards. Three years later, he went on to develop a man-carrying glider under a single-speared wing, with pilot-operated controls, including an elevator and rudder, working flappers and wheel brakes, which he somewhat confusingly called a governable parachute. Cayley's granddaughter, Dora Thompson, wrote that this crossed Brompton Dale, a steep valley near his home, in the hands of his coachman before it came down with a smash. At this the coachman apparently emerged from the battered vehicle and gave in his notice, shouting, Sir George, I was hired to drive, not to fly. The soundness of its design became evident when a replica was successfully flown by Derek Piggott across Brompton Dale in 1973, and another built by BAE Systems for Richard Branson was successfully piloted by him across the Dale in 2002. Cayley's basic aeronautical achievements are unquestionable. Building a fixed-wing aircraft and identifying the elements of flight, including lift, propulsion and maintaining stability, although he had no wing warping or aliens, nor, of course, genuine power. It therefore seems highly surprising that Cayley was so little known. Much here was down to Cayley himself. As a relatively wealthy man, he didn't worry over much about registering his inventions, nor becoming a good self-publicist. As a result, his work was largely forgotten although in Britain he would be followed, quite quickly, by a number of further and in many ways less comprehensive pioneers on the road to manned flight. The first two were highly skilled lace-making engineers from Somerset, William Henson and John Stringfellow. In 1843 Henson produced his aerial steam carriage, a remarkable modern-looking plane with long double-skimmed wings main spars and propellers, but although it prefigured the future, it could not have flown for it had no propulsion system. In contrast, Stringfellow proved a brilliant constructor of small steam engines and he produced a steam-driven model monoplane that actually flew, but only in the strictly controlled environment of a disused warehouse. They were followed by Francis Wenham, who built the first simple wind tunnel for testing wings. He was a passionate observer of birds from which he deduced that the swift flyers had long narrow wings and heavy flyers short ones. He also correctly concluded that most of the lift came from the wing's front portion. Wenham, however, was distinctly pessimistic, seeing true flight as an insuperable aspiration even, apparently, after the Wrights had flown. Another wing experimenter was Londoner Horatio Phillips, who constructed a tethered wing of convex slats of wood, each one and a half inches wide and 22 feet long, most resembling a Venetian blind. His wing was tethered, and when driven by a steam engine, it circled a central post to lift three feet into the air. 
However, with no controls, it could never be considered as a genuine flying machine. It was to Lawrence Hargrave, an Englishman, who lived in Australia, that credit is owed for the invention of the box kite that would give stability to the first European planes. Hargreave had his distinct limitations, for he also built some 25 aero engines, including a form of jet, none of which was successful. Another undoubted inventor and self-acclaimed air pioneer at this time was the American Hiram Maxim, who was domiciled in Britain and took British nationality. Maxim invented the carburetor, light bulb, and most important of all, the power-operated machine gun with its death-dealing ability during World War I. By 1894, Maxim had constructed a massive steam-powered plane weighing no less than 8,000 pounds and costing an incredible 100,000. And this took five years to build, but it had no fuselage and had to run on rails. After a second attempt, following an unsuccessful one, during which it lifted a few inches off the ground, Maxim am amazingly declared his attempts to fly were over. Although as a group these post-Cayley pioneers made particular advances, they were not complete enough to achieve genuine flight, about which they remained far from confident. Ironically, they were succeeded late in the century by British hang glidist Percy Pilcher, who adopted the techniques of the Austrian Otto Lilienthal, who controlled his frail gliders with his bodily movements. Pilcher had little capital and only sketchy theoretical knowledge, but he made up for it with his immense bravery and confidence about achieving flight. His best glider was the Hawk, equipped with a simple undercarriage for which he had plans to install a small engine using carbonic acid gas. Sadly, uh, these experiments ended in 1899 when the Hawk crashed and Pilcher subsequently died of his injuries. With Pilcher's death, British attempts at man flight faltered and the initiative would pass to the Americans. There, French-American Octave Chanute made many successful, if short, flights in his triplane glider, although the country's most prominent constructor was Professor Samuel Pierpoint Langley, secretary of the renowned Smithsonian Institution. Langley embarked on a costly five-year campaign to achieve manned flight, supported by official funds. He constructed a tandem-wing model aircraft propelled by steam that, when launched from a houseboat on the Potomac, flew a distance of 4,000 feet. His main attempt at man flight took place on the 8th of December 1903 when he launched an aeroplane powered this time by a petrol engine from the same houseboat. With no effective control system, it straightway dropped like a stone into the river, and its pilot only narrowly escaped. Langley had formidable rivals in the more shadowy Wright brothers, who gave far less attention to their engine while concentrating on their glider's controls. 
1901 they built a box glider kite with a forward elevator and by 1902 after much practice they succeeded in linking its elevator rudder and wing warping system. After scores of short flights over the extensive sands of Kitty Hawk they had an engine built of 13 horsepower for which they radically redesigned its propeller. The calculations for their propeller design filled five notebooks and led them to reject all previous ones. As a consequence, on the 17th of December 1903, shortly after Langley's failure, Orville Wright, in business suit, took off and covered 120 feet in a level controlled flight lasting 12 seconds. Later in the day, Wilbur Wright flew further. They then destroyed their plane and returned for a family Christmas at Dayton, Ohio. Following their protracted series of gliding tests, their custom-built engine and well-tried control system finally brought them the success to denied to so many others. Having so far shouldered the financial costs of their researches, the Wrights then decided to cash in on their unique successes. Although during 1905-8 to they further improved their plane, which was now able to fly for up to half an hour, they made no public flights in case these revealed its design features. In 1908, they offered it to Britain and other countries for the sum of £25,000. In spite of their flight's strategic implications, the British somewhat surprisingly rejected the offer. This was because at Farnborough's balloon factory, Superintendent Colonel John Capper persuaded his masters in the war office that he had two men on his staff, Lieutenant John Dunn and the one-time American cowboy Samuel Franklin Cody, whom he expected to construct better planes than the Wright's flyer. Capper had particular faith in Dunn and his swept-wing plane, while Cody's was more closely based on the Wright's designs. Kappa's ambitions seemed reasonable, for two years before in France, the Brazilian-French aviator Santos Dumont had already flown. At Farnborough, Dunn received the cream of the factory's resources, but his attempt, made in the Scottish Highlands, failed. Ironically, Cody then made a genuine flight at Farnborough on the 16th of October 1908. This, however, was without Kappa's knowledge, and he proved reluctant to acknowledge Cody's signal achievement, although a press photograph confirmed it. In any event, just one week later, an influential subcommittee of Imperial Defence was appointed to examine the whole future of British aviation, in view of the disappointing progress which they thought was made so far at, at Farnborough. Amazingly, despite Cody's achievement, it decided that work on aeroplanes at the military ballooning establishment should be discontinued, with funds reallocated for airship construction. Although they did agree that steps should be taken to examine a Wright aircraft that was due to be purchased by Charles Rolls. Dunn and Cody were dismissed, with Cody keeping his plane and going it alone in a hut he erected on Laffin's Plain near Farnborough and Kappa 
eventually being replaced by consulting engineer Mervyn O'Gorman. For Cody, this marked the beginning of a four-year period where he would prove himself a leading pioneering figure, flying aircraft of his own making, which in his hands succeeded in competition against far more technically advanced machines. However, in practical terms, his aircraft would prove of little utility for Britain's infant Royal Flying Corps. British complacency against aircraft was deservedly jolted when ten months later, on Sunday the 25th of July 1909, Louis Blériot flew across the Channel, thus ending Britain's much-prized and long-standing insularity. By now the French had drawn well ahead with their accomplished flyers and skilled airframe and engine constructors. In Britain, where things were far less advanced, Cody was still coaxing a respectable performance from his modified aircraft, while IEV Rowe was limited to making 100-foot hops in his plane on Hackney Marshes. And Geoffrey de Havilland, while building a plane, had yet to fly it. At Farnborough, the balloon factory, renamed now the Royal Aircraft Factory, was relying on damaged prototypes of foreign aircraft being submitted to it. There appeared a strong likelihood of the country falling further behind had it not been for significant achievements from a cross-section of aviation supporters to whom it owes so much. Spreading the word for aviation was fundamental and two journalists in particular played a notable part. In pride of place was Alfred Harmsworth, Lord Northcliffe, proprietor of the Big Three, the Daily Mail, the Mirror and the Times. A devotee of air, he was determined to make the country air conscious through his editorials in the crusading Daily Mail and through offering massive prizes of up to £10,000 for air races, the first of which was from London to Manchester, then a race around Britain, both of which were won by French flyers, despite Cody's heroic efforts in the latter. Another publicist was Charles Gray, editor of the weekly publication of the aeroplane. Gray's main contribution was as an intellectual gadfly for aeronautical progress. In typical fashion, he wrote, there are certain products of nature whose reason for existence is hard to explain, such, for instance, as wasps, worms, technical journals and government officials. Officials, of course, who didn't support air. Gray's anger was directed against what he saw as the prevailing apathy and lack of funds for aviation in Britain. In fact, Northcliffe's popular press became so influential that it would suffer draconian censorship during the coming war. Other individuals became practised flyers and helped to develop British aviation's industrial base. Among the earliest flyers were men like Charles Rolls, John Moore Brabazon, Alex Ogilvy, and the inimitable Samuel Cody, who was arguably the most accomplished of the earliest ones. However, when it came to technical expertise, they had nothing to teach another Englishman who came slightly later to the scene. This was the Essex Airman, Bentfield, Benny Hucks, the so-called Quiet Buccaneer. At twenty, Hucks 
took an apprenticeship in the motor car industry, during which time his father helped him buy a second-hand car, where his skilled tuning, love of speed and the current speed restrictions brought him multiple fines and in 1907 an inevitable three-year driving ban. The alternative to driving was flying, but he didn't have the money to buy a plane and he took employment with Claude Graham White and went over to America with him. Graham White allowed Hux to make short flights, and on the basis of such early promise, he was appointed pilot and mechanic to Robert Blackburn, the Yorkshire aeroplane designer, before qualifying as a pilot on the 30th of May 1911. By the end of the year, Hux had flown over a thousand miles and established a number of records. He joined Graham White at Hendon and flew a Blerio 11 for both racing and exhibition work before going freelance. Hux was the first to loop the loop and he followed this by imitating the French flyer Adolphe Pegou in flying upside down, an outstandingly bold practice with aircraft of this time. Hux practiced by being strapped upside down in a chair where he concentrated on reading a newspaper. Such were his skills and popularity that on New Year's Day 1914 he was given the famous upside-down dinner by the Hendon Flyers. They sat at tables where a second rested on the original with its legs in the air, with model aeroplanes suspended upside-down overhead. The waiters, dressed in mechanics' overalls, started with coffee and liqueurs for the royal toast, then savouries and sweets, through various joints and entrees, via soup to the hors d'oeuvres. Benny earned his recognition, for he was a peerless performer in the fragile aircraft of the day. Harry Harper, Britain's first air correspondent with the Daily Mail, loved to describe his stunts, and the coming war promised to offer him wider and more dramatic possibilities. It was not to be, although he duly joined the Royal Flying Corps in 1914 and continued testing aircraft, his stunting had strained his health and after a severe attack of pleurisy he was invalided out and died of flu before the end of the war. Such pilots were a remarkable band, including the great scientific test pilot at Farnborough, Ted Busk, who died experimenting in the air, and debonair surgeon's son, Gustav Hamel, who deliberately flew in all weathers and disappeared during his 18th Channel crossing. However skilled its pilots, Britain needed its own planes, and it needed them before the expected war broke out. Cody's planes proved too idiosyncratic for general use, and although the Short brothers were building Wright's planes and one or two of their own, they were designed with naval flyers in mind. On the credit side, following de Havilland's struggles with limited resources, he progressed to become the successful designer of BE-2 aircraft at the Royal Aircraft Factory, and, following his own prolonged struggles, A.V. Rowe finally broke through in 1913 with his remarkable Type 504 biplane. Possibly the most successful constructor before the war was Thomas Sopwith the eighth child and only son of a financially comfortable family whose enthusiasm for sport and speed stayed with him all his life.
As a teenager, Sopwith sold Rolls-Royce cars, and at 16 he purchased a motorcycle and became the youngest competitor on the Isle of Man TT races. A keen sailor, he bought a dilapidated schooner, the Neva, and employed the highly talented, if poorly educated, Fred Sigrist to maintain it at the princely sum of £2.14 shillings a week. Sopwith was to prove a brilliant picker of men who could help him in his aeronautical ventures. He was undoubtedly a young man in a hurry. In 1910 he went to Brooklands, where he paid £5 to fly two circuits of the course. Without any further instruction, he rapidly bought an Avis monoplane, which he took to Brooklands and crashed. He then returned with a larger engine biplane, and on a single day after practising rolling along the ground in the morning, he made straight hops before lunch and complete circuits in the afternoon to qualify for aviation certificate number 31 before taking up his first passenger that very evening. Sopwith became an accomplished flyer, winning many prizes, before in February 1912 he set up the Sopwith School of Flying at Brooklands. He then gave up flying instruction to establish his aviation company, where he was joined by the young Australians, Harry Hawker and Harry Cowper. Hawker paid for pilot training under Sopwith, and in addition to his engineering and design skills, he would become an outstanding test pilot for the Embryo Enterprise. Sigrist, Hawker and Sopwith formed a formidable team, with Sopwith's mental probing and wry humour a vital feature. Incorporating certain features of current aircraft, they sketched out their first aeroplane in chalk on the floor of Sopwith's hut at Brooklands, appropriately calling it the hybrid. To Sopwith's delight, he sold a few to the Royal Navy. With his shed becoming too small for a factory, Sopwith acquired a disused roller skating rink at Kingston-upon-Thames for a few hundred pounds. By 1914 at Kingston, they were building successful aircraft, including an amazing little plane they called the Tabloid. In 1914, a seaplane version of it won the second Schneider Trophy, where it was said to have completed five laps to the opposition's four. 130 tabloids were ordered before the war, and more important still, it provided the inspiration for the Sopwith Camel, the Royal Flying Corps' most successful World War I fighter. Another remarkable constructor was the humbly born but highly skilled businessman Sir George White, founder of Bristol and Colonial's Flying School and Bristol's subsequently Aviation Company, whose Bristol Scout was ordered by the British War Office shortly after the start of the war. Apart from these and other outstanding achievers, British aviation benefited greatly from other colourful and influential individuals who might best be termed practical visionaries. In this category came flamboyant Claude Graham White, entrepreneur and master pilot, who established Hendon as London's airport, where his weekly racing competitions made it a popular showplace for aviation where attracting up to 100,000 spectators, and where he would, for instance, demonstrate aviation's bombing potential to members of Parliament. A quite different character 
was British aircraft pioneer and far-sighted thinker George Holt Thomas, who founded Airco, that became Britain's largest aircraft producer during World War I, for which he recruited the brilliant Geoffrey de Havilland as his chief designer before championing civil aviation following the war. An influential figure who escaped any prototype was Charles Rolls, third son of Lord Lantock, who was undoubtedly a central, if enigmatic, player in early British aviation. Rolls had the reputation of being a solitary, who read engineering at Cambridge before acquiring further experience at Crewe railway shops. He was at Cambridge with renowned sportsman and pioneer aviator John Brabazon, who with characteristic impishness said that he was the sweetest, kindest, meanest man I ever met. He would apparently lunch at the Aero Club on his own sandwiches and ask for a glass of water to accompany them. Mean or not, Rolls went into business as an automobile agent where he proved especially successful with wealthier clients, where he pioneered early hire purchase arrangements. He also proved astute enough to enter into partnership with Henry Royce to build the Silver Ghost, the finest car in the world, which Rolls drove to inevitable success in competitions. A long-time balloon enthusiast, he helped to found the Aero Club of Great Britain, and he bought the first of the Wright's planes, built in this country by the Short Brothers. In typical style, after much use, he sold it to the War Office at, at its original price. Whatever his financial sharpness, Rolls was a strong supporter of early British aviation. He gained the second pilot's licence awarded by the Aero Club, and when giving evidence to the 1909 Subcommittee on Aviation, he strongly championed the aeroplane. In 1910, he flew an aeroplane non-stop across the Channel and back, before being killed at the Bournemouth Air Show. This was in a plane whose tail he'd modified, and by which he became the first early pilot casualty. In fact, his death cut short his plans to form an aircraft company with Royce designing the engines. While far from brilliant at human relations, and in his aeronautical skills, Rolls carried the flag to many influential people, and his signal act of recruiting Henry Royce into his company surely warranted a leading place among aviation supporters. Other men supported aviation from within Parliament. Outstanding here was Winston Churchill, who among his wide concerns was a strong enthusiast for aviation, if on his own terms. He was not only the founder and close supporter of the Royal Naval Air Service, which he turned into an impressive organisation, but he also believed in aircraft being used beyond a reconnaissance role, even to conducting preemptive strikes. Another was William Johnson Hicks, a future distinguished Home Secretary, who would play a seminal role before World War I in harrying the current Air Minister, Colonel John Seeley, to ensure that the Royal Flying Corps had a viable number of aircraft. In 1912, Joynson Hicks and Duncan Sands discovered that instead of the 120 first-line planes declared available, the true number was a pathetic 23. This led to the downfall of Seeley and a last-minute rush to provide the machines needed. A third colourful and crusading parliamentarian 
was Noel Pemberton Billing, maverick figure and founder of supermarine aviation, who during World War I attacked the Royal Aircraft Factory for producing vulnerable aircraft that he labelled as Fokker Fodder and which led to the factory ceasing aeroplane production. Unsurprisingly, there were a relatively small number of air supporters within the two armed forces. In the Army's case, they included Captains Bertram Dixon and John Fulton and Lieutenant Lancelot Gibbs, who all owned planes and took part in the 1910 Army manoeuvres on Salisbury Plain. They were far from your average officers. Dixon was a regular officer in the Royal Horse Artillery, who, while on extended leave, attended Farman's Flying School in France, where he proved a natural and gifted pilot. He bought a Farman and became an excellent exhibition performer. Bristol offered him one of their box kite aircraft for the 1910 Army manoeuvres, where at one point he was forced to land and was captured, during which he talked at length to Winston Churchill about the wide utility of aircraft. A profound thinker on aviation, Dixon foresaw that air forces would play a major part in a future war and would have to contend for air supremacy. He also believed that aviators tended to be both self-willed and disparate. As a result, it was decided that individual publicity and self-advancement should be discouraged, thus forming the basis of the tradition that whatever the casualties, flying should always continue as usual. Shortly after the 1910 manoeuvres, Dixon was badly injured in a mid-air collision in Milan, and although he partly recovered, he died prematurely in September 1913. He was considered by many as the likely future leader of the Royal Flying Corps, and if he had been able to take his chance, the air tactics during World War I might have been very different. The Navy had its early flying champions in Lieutenants Sampson and Longmore, who went on its initial flying course at Eastchurch. There they flew planes purchased by wealthy air enthusiast Frank McLean, along with the colourful captain, later Commodore Murray Souter, who would command the Royal Naval Air Service and would be killed in the R101 airship disaster, they helped to create the Royal Navy's aviation traditions. However dedicated and resourceful this cross-section of individuals, in the years approaching the war, aviation was not considered nearly as seriously in Britain as in Germany and France. In 1912, Britain had just 19 officer aviators and virtually no aircraft compared with France's 263 flying men and 200 machines and Germany's 30 huge airships and growing fleet of aircraft. In fact, there were no official orders for aircraft until after the scare caused by the presence of the German gunboat Panther at Agadir in 1911 and this tended to support the suspicion concerning government reluctance towards a means of war that reduced the country's prized insularity. Britain's Flying Corps was not established until the 13th of April 1912, although a unique sense of identity was rapidly forged through the 12-week courses held at its Central Flying School under renowned naval captain Godfrey Payne, or during its famous dress rehearsal for war in June 1914 at a so-called concentration camp 
at Netherhaven on Salisbury Plain, where flying was made compulsory, whatever the weather. Even so, at the beginning of the war, its planes were neither that impressive nor numerous, and there was still a dangerous dependence on French engines. The Royal Flying Corps' total complement at the time was 146 officers and 1,097 other ranks, from which it decided to send no fewer than 105 officers and 700 other ranks to France. To this end, on the 13th of August 1914, numbers 2, 3 and 4 squadrons set off from Dover, Swingate Downs, having already suffered fatalities in getting there. Their aircraft were a mixture of French Blériots and semi-obsolescent Henry and Morris Farmans, with Farmans in particular lacking power, along with the standard Royal Aircraft Factory's BE-2As. Number 5 Squadron, that flew two days later, was equipped with Avro 504s, in addition to their Morris Farmans. With such a mixed collection of aircraft and the crude navigation aids of the day, the authorities were well aware of the dangers facing the crews on their journey. Along with their maps and the name of their destination, they were issued with tyre inner tubes to act as life belts. The pilots also carried a very pistol, field glasses and a spare pair of goggles, together with a survival kit that included a water bottle filled with boiled water, a miniature stove and a haversack containing biscuits, cold meat, a bar of chocolate and a package of soup concentrate. The kit had to be comprehensive, for as yet there was no air-sea rescue, nor even parachutes. Pilots' confidence in their aircraft could not have been helped by their orders not to set their course before reaching a height of 3,000 feet, following which, in the event of engine failures, they could glide across the channel. In the case of Number 2 Squadron, its belligerent commander, Major James Burke, gave orders that in the event of them meeting a zeppelin, they were to ram it. While a good indication of his state of mind, there was little danger for their aeroplanes could not reach the zeppelin's altitudes, unless that was that the zeps were in trouble. Whatever the problems encountered by the night of the 13th of August, 49 planes were parked in the open at Amiens, ready to move to the Royal Flying Corps' forward base, while back in Britain there were scarcely any operational aircraft left. The perils of the journey were not yet over, for in the movement to their forward base at Maubeuge, a replacement BE-8 crashed on takeoff, killing its pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Evelyn Copeland Perry, and its, his mechanic, Herbert Parfit, and two days later another BE-8 suffered a control failure, seriously injuring its pilot, Robert Smith Barry, and killing his mechanic, Corporal Frederick Geard. Happily, another BE-8 replacement that crashed soon afterwards did not cause serious injury to its crew. The relatively low priority given to the Royal Flying Corps was seen in the number of commercial vehicles in its aircraft park that would follow by sea. One bore a massive blue-black splash for Stevens Inc., and there was a pantechnicon in Maples Green. Most distinctive of all was a large scarlet lorry with gold letters proclaiming HP, Houses of Parliament Source, as the nation's appetizer. This would be used as Number 5 Squadron's ammunition and bomb lorry, 
and later it acted as a landmark for disoriented pilots during the coming withdrawal. Back in Farnborough, a short-tempered Major Hugh Trenchard was in charge of the administrative wing where his staff was limited to one clerk and one typewriter. He could hardly have been impressed when on opening the safe he came upon a pair of old boots and a lot of unpaid bills incurred by various officers in the Flying Corps in the rush to the front who were hoping not to pay them until the end of hostilities. By various expedients, the first few Royal Flying Corps units reached the front line. Four years later, their sparse ranks would have grown to become the world's largest air force, seemingly given British aviation massive opportunities, including the development of civil aviation after the war. Characteristically, such superiority was rapidly discarded, and new and equally colourful individuals would again be needed to design and fly the planes and refocus the strategy to combat the aerial assaults threatened in a new war. This time, though, they had the advantage of the enduring traditions forged by their forebears in the lead-up to and during the Great War.